So welcome everyone to this Intralingo Spotlight. I'm Lisa Carter and I am so happy today to be chatting with Alison Charette about hello. hello i'm so <laughs> glad you're here um allison you're a translator from the french and today we're here to talk about your wonderful new book called return to the enchanted island um, by johari ravelosin i don't know if i said the name right it's it's fine that's that's good enough for any good enough <laughs> <laughs> you can say it properly in a minute sure. and I'll pick up on it. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so the novel comes out. We're recording today, November 4th. The novel comes out tomorrow. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, it is. It is so exciting. And as we were just saying, it can sometimes feel um, a little surprising because you delivered the manuscript months and months ago, and uh, but now finally it's uh, it's coming out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. So to start, Alison, would you share a little bit with us about your trajectory as a translator, <laughs> um, but also specifically in regards to your work with um, Malagasy authors from Madagascar, which you are the one and only, the preeminent. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So um, I have been focusing on authors from Madagascar for about the last five years now. And that all started because I randomly read a blog one day a woman named Anne Morgan kept a blog called a year of reading the world mm -hmm. um, a number of years ago where she read a novel from every country around the world except Madagascar didn't have one and what I discovered was that at the time there were no translations of any novels from Madagascar that had been done into English whether from French or from Malagasy I don't speak Malagasy enough to translate from it yet but the French was, was basically this just like, I was blindsided by that. How can a country of 24 million people, it, it's not a tiny place. How can a country that's that big have no literature, have no fiction really represented in English? And so that snowballed very quickly into, oh, you know, starting from reading some of these books to, oh, let's just go to Madagascar and try to meet some of these authors and find <laughs> more books. Um, and, and it, it quickly just became, this is what I need to be working on for, you know, it's, it's become my career at this point. Um, so I have been working with a number of different Malagasy authors and, um, the, the first novel, yeah, I, I try to put in quotation marks, but that's, it's completely accurate. The first mm -hmm. novel from Madagascar to be translated into English was one that I did that came out two years ago, which was Beyond the Rice Fields by Nyboth. Um, and that was a historical fiction book, which was really great to work on. And then the next one is this one. And I've been working with Duach for several years now. I've, I've done a couple of his short stories. Um, one was published in Words Without Borders. There was another one that was published this past summer in the Southern Review. And I'm so, so, so happy that his, his first English novel, or the first translation of, of one of his novels is finally coming out. Yeah, that is so exciting. And as you say, it's, um, it's almost hard to believe that until two years ago, yeah. there were no novels from Madagascar in English. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's stunning. And there's, it, it's one of those things that there's several reasons for that, but there's also several reasons why it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, so it, my, I, I see my role or, or I kind of feel a duty almost at this point because I know so many of these authors so well now to help the, help the country's literature play catch up. And not just that being translated into English is the be all end all and oh, if you've been translated into English, you've made it. That's not the point. The point is to help them, help their literature spread enough that it can be part of the kind of international literary conversation. Um, Madagascar is in a, a weird kind of cut off place in terms of being part or, or not being part of, of the conversation that's happening in the kind of greater African mm -hmm. scope. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good exchange that's happening elsewhere in Francophone African countries like Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Cameroon, Senegal, the Ivory Coast, all the kind of like Northern and Western African countries. But for both geographic and political reasons, Madagascar is not really part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so the attention that is brought to that literature by being translated into English also helps in the original language and also helps the French language publishers kind of sit up and say, oh, this book is important enough to have been translated now, so maybe we should start caring about it a little bit more too. Mm -hmm. And there, there is such a wonderful, like there, there's several really amazing Francophone African authors who, for example, have, uh, who, who teach at Yale or who teach at Columbia and are kind of part of this international exchange. And so, you know, for the, as, as many books as I can help get out there and start translating and, and give to other people to translate from Madagascar to help play catch up, essentially, mm -hmm. that is, that's where I'm at right now. Excellent. Excellent. It's so wonderful. And as you say, like, and we'll talk about this in relation to the book a little bit, but Madagascar is kind of in this, um, this odd position, um, being an island off the coast of Africa, it's almost like a second, you know, like another continent in mm -hmm. itself, um, just in terms of isolation its own history. Um, it really holds a very unique place mm -hmm. in, in the world. Uh, and, uh, and it's a place most of us don't know almost anything about. Right. And it's, you know, it's just one of those corners of the world that, and, and especially, I've, I'm not sure what, uh, what the Canadian public education system is like, but in the U.S. we don't get a lot of world history mm. when we're in school growing up in in the public system and so you know even to to know anything about anywhere in africa before colonization is most of the time not something you're taught in school so that has been something that i've been teaching myself as an adult and then let alone this kind of more separate smaller more isolated area um Madagascar is actually um, a, a bigger part of a different way of, of looking at um, the kind of regional boundaries of, of cultural stuff um, that in that that is kind of called the the Indian Ocean literature or art circle. 
And so that is Madagascar. That's the little tiny islands like right. Reunion and Mauritius and, and Mayotte and the Comoros Islands. There's actually a really great, there's two now really great literary magazines, excuse me, um, that are coming out of that region in mm. French. Um, one is actually run by Zouar and his wife. Uh, they run a publishing company out of Normandy now. They started it in Madagascar and Reunion, and they've since moved to Normandy. But uh, their Dodo Vol, Flying Dodo Bird publishing house, has started publishing a literary magazine called, um, in English, it's Letters from Lemuria, which is kind of this fantastical name for the area because of all the lemurs. Lemurs. And so they're publishing both in French, but also in all of the uh, native languages, Malagasy, Creole from, uh, from Reunion, and, and all of these other uh, wonderful languages in that area. And that, that's been running for past three years, I think. Mm. And so that's just been, you know, even if it's difficult for them to take part in kind of the larger African conversation, they do have a wealth of wonderful things happening in that area. Mm-hmm. You just have to know where to look. And that's part of the problem for people who live in America. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And as you say, Shohar is, um, uh, he's, he's extremely well known in the area. He's award winning. It's just, uh, we haven't been exposed to him exactly. until, until now. Yeah, wonderful. So you're going to read um, an excerpt for us. And do you want to set it up for us a little bit first about the novel and uh, the part sure. you're going to read? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so. I am just going to read from the very beginning of the book. Um, this book is about a, uh, a young man named Yetze Razak, who is, uh, his, his name means the blessed one. He is from a very wealthy family in Madagascar. He is one of those people who's never going to have to work a day in their life. Very privileged, very just it, it, it oozes all of all of this um and when the story opens as you will hear he can't sleep he is having insomnia and kind of the entire book is going is jumping back in his history forward in his history or um you know kind of back and forth through his childhood and, and early adulthood and then also back and forth through the early legends of madagascar and some more recent history of the country to explore all of this and then kind of help not not help him but he's trying to figure out why he can't sleep when his life is so wonderful and that's where the story opens and that's what i'm going to read from today excellent go ahead so this is from the first section which is aptly titled the enchanted island For some time now, even though there was likely nothing that should have disturbed his nights, Yetzi would wake up. Usually at such moments, there were no crickets chirping and no owls hooting. The pipistrelle bats had apparently caused their furious fluttering, and their furless wings neither made striking flap-flap sounds nor beat the air. There wasn't even a breeze that might have crinkled the leaves on the trees, not even slightly. The normal wooden creaks of the house were silent, 
No restless stirring could be detected beneath the bedsheets. It was as if the silence itself had pulled him from his sleep. Should it continue, he'd persuade himself that he was sleeping, dreaming, keeping his eyes shut and not moving a muscle. He'd let his mind wander, grasping at profound or asinine thoughts here and there, but never pushing them through to their conclusion so as not to chase off his almost dreams. Surely the echoing lull, or rather his passing isolation, would never last long enough for the wandering to persist. Certain sounds did ebb and flow like a lazy tide, with a few popping abruptly in his auditory canals. The ones that never ceased, like the one from the regulated movement of the hundred-year-old pendulum set into the wall above the staircase. It was so much a part of the house itself, aging with it instead of measuring the passing time. But sometimes you could forget entire days, even as it chimed each quarter hour and ticked every second. His wife's breathing, so regular and so familiar, that he had to concentrate to discern her presence. So close, almost inside, breath of his breath. He'd been married to Leonore for over 15 years. It made him fall in love all over again. Dogs started barking again nearby. An echo reached him of a truck passing on the national road. A buzzing insect or gnat irritated his ear. He picked out the sound of a spider's eight legs brushing against the baseboards, the muted sound from the next room of the sleigh bed's feet against the mildly warped wood as his youngest child tossed and turned, the sighs and murmured half phrases of children's dreams from his oldest daughter or her sister in the room down the hall, the crumpled garbage bag in the kitchen downstairs with probably a mouse or a roach digging jumpily through it, and the wind tussling the slumbering outdoors. During these moments, if he did lift his eyelids, he would remark that it was, unsurprisingly, dark. As his pupils dilated, he could make out an arm if his wife had rolled over in her sleep, or part of her back, her face faintly aglow from the white sheets, and other forms, also blurry, of unmoving objects that seemed to have been there for years. He could sometimes see a star twinkling through the cracks in the shutters, or the pale clear moon, momentarily covered by the frenetic paths of passing pupistrels, hunting their thousands of mosquitoes per day. Like them, he could move around the house without light, this house that had witnessed his birth. He could get up noiselessly and breathe the country air, now so close to the city. He didn't do anything of the sort at first. He wanted to recover his sleep as quickly as possible. Mostly, he didn't want to interfere with the unfolding night. He knew all this, and it buttressed the calm. The calm of Anusisu, the home of the enchanted island, between the rice fields and the woods, within the centuries-old walls, the calm of the neighboring village, the industrial zone, the city, places a hundred miles in every direction, probably the entire country. All of that was reassuring. All of that should have reassured him. It should have created a state of peace, but that state here wasn't known as sleeping at night. His nocturnal disquiet may have had something to do with his inactivity during the day. Yetzirazak didn't have what one would call a career, much less a job. Granted, he didn't have to worry about what he would eat, how he would clothe himself, where he would live. All material concerns had been provided for him, in advance and in abundance. It had always been like that in their family, as far as I know. That's fantastic. Thank you. That is how that starts. Yes. And you know, it... Um... 
it's it's wonderful to hear it number one because it always makes a difference to hear something read out loud but also mm -hmm. after having finished the book um hearing you read that i can see so many things that are set up so perfectly in that opening yeah um yeah it's so true so you know, Madagascar is referred to as the Enchanted Island. Mm -hmm. And as the novel begins, we get that absolute sense of, of tranquility, of tropical, of exoticness that seems very pleasant to those mm -hmm. of us in North America. Right. <laughs> right. As we go into winter. <laughs> exactly. You know, you've got the pipistrelle bats and the chirping and all of that, but there's this undertone, this current of all is not well, mm -hmm. even though perhaps it should be, uh, especially for Yetzi being from a very privileged position uh, in society. So it's, it's so interesting throughout the novel to me, this um, dichotomy between enchantment and charmed life. Um, and yet there's, everything is not well. Mm -hmm. It's not well on the island. It's not all well with Yetzi. Um, so can you tell us a little bit, you know, from your experience of the book, but also of Madagascar, you know, is that dichotomy, you know, present in, in, in life? Um, it's, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, it is, I mean, one of, one of the things that you learn immediately about Madagascar is it is one of those very, very poor places in the world. It is consistently among the 10 poorest countries in the world, according to the World Bank. Um, it's, you know, it is struggling economically um, and has been for, for many, many, many years. Um, it gained, they gained independence in 1960, but they never really were able to get on their feet as a country in the way that places like Ethiopia have been able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is, there, there is, I mean, there, like, like every place there, there's a lot of dichotomies. There's a lot of kind of warring things about the country mm -hmm. because it is, it is one of the poorest places in the world, but you also have this side of, the ultra rich and the the very wealthy, the very powerful, <coughs> and that is that side is explored very well in this book, which is one of the things that drew me to it because there are so many narratives about the poverty and the destitution about mm. Madagascar, and Duarte actually set out writing this book to break through that one narrative of this is just a poor place and he wanted to show that there was there are more layers to a an entire country surprise um <laughs> but i i think he did that very very well so the the book does a very good job of showing you know here's how you can have this this life of ease and comfort and leisure and it's it's something that the, he he traces Yetzi's family back to, you know, the the earliest legends of how Madagascar, how people first arrived in Madagascar, and, and kind of who the first man was in Malagasy legend. But also he traces it back through more recent history of the 
um, the, the royalty period in the 1600s, 1700s, the um, and early 1800s, and then the colonization period, and kind of shows how this family was always able to remain wealthy and in control and on top and 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 influential and powerful kind of no matter what was going on Mm -hmm. and and that's that's an important narrative to have as well absolutely and i think you know one of the things about this novel is that there um it is peppered with so much information but it's just dropped in like little bits. Um, and it leaves me as a reader um, constantly going to the internet to look up, to understand more because there are things that I haven't necessarily considered before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the colonization period of, of Madagascar, you know, all of the realities. Um, but what's beautiful is, is the underlying legend through it all. That is what makes it feel, um, so unique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot to explore. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that, that drew me to this book, especially, um, you know, I, as a translator pitching most of, at this point, all of my own things, I don't choose which order they're going to get published in because it depends on on the whims of of what editors are looking for and where I'm pitching and all that. But I am so happy that this book ended up being the one to come on the heels of Beyond the Rice Fields for people who are looking to read more fiction about a place like Madagascar because Beyond the Rice Fields had so much, so much wonderful history in it. It's very much a historical fiction book. There are all of these real events and and real things that happened and real people who appear as characters in the book um, from the the period of the early 1800s when British and French uh, colonists were, well, they weren't they hadn't colonized at that point, but you know, British and French missionaries and industrialists and, and right. governmental people were first coming in. And the history was so integral to that book. And you can't, you could not understand the story without understanding the history. And Nido did a great job of, of explaining the history as the, the narrative went along. But in a, in a book like Return to the Enchanted Island, it is more of this you know, peppering in, as you were saying, of, <coughs> of both, you know, kind of a, a little bit of the contemporary s- state of society of, mm-hmm. of Madagascar and a little bit of the history and then a lot of the legends. And it's, it's, it is that, that type of thing where if you want to go to the internet and find out more, you can totally do that, but you can also understand the narrative just with these little drips and drops of things that are are put in there. And it's not such a, I guess, history lesson. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very, um, it's a very, it's not a, a heavy book, like mm-hmm. dense, I guess is maybe another word I could use. Yeah. It's not dense with history or anything. Um, and I think it is because, um, 
you know, it's stylistically reflecting Yetzi's experience, which is this insomnia sort of dreamy state of um, confusion. It's very fluid, as you said, and in terms of time, mm -hmm. um, it's not a, it is a linear narrative primarily, but not exactly. Um, it's, a, it's a linear narrative with a lot of flashbacks. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it's... Or, or made up of flashbacks, maybe, would be a better way to describe it. Right, right. And then, and then the, uh, you know, the legend is, is just incorpororated mm -hmm. there. It's not like um, Yetzi, current day Yetzi, is, is telling the, the legend, but um, it's, a, it's quite a seamless and um, it's a very enchanting read, actually, mm -hmm. just, just like the title would, would suggest. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. So um, I guess just to um, wrap up here, I would love to hear from you, Alison, whether you're, there's anything that you hope readers will will take from um, the novel Return to the Enchanted Island. Mm -hmm. um, we, we've touched on this a little bit, but it's the the, the one takeaway would be that any, any place that you hear about in the world doesn't have just one narrative about it. And that I think is one of the, the beauties of this book is it takes, you know, if, if you just hear about Madagascar through the news, what you're gonna hear is poverty, illegal redwood exportation, corruption of the government, you know, probably the bubonic plague lemurs it's, lemurs <laughs> you know and 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 then on the other side you you do still have the lemurs you do still have the 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 wonderful rich ecological um it, treasure frankly that that madagascar is madagascar is so biodiverse it has i think it's something like 75 percent of all of the flora and fauna on Madagascar is only found on Madagascar. It's, it's ridiculous. So it's, it's either like poverty, corruption, or biologists go there to study. Um, and one of, and, and so, you know, it, it falls prey a lot of the times. I, I'm sure you've heard um, the, the one TED talk that uh, Chinamande Adichie had done that was the danger of a single story. Mm -hmm. And especially with African countries for kind of Western Anglophone readers, that is very much the trap that we fall into. And, and, and frankly, like it took me two trips to Madagascar to pull myself out of that because I had been so overwhelmed the first time I went with the differences between what I was used to living in the United States or France and what I was seeing in Madagascar, mm -hmm. that I was just, I was only doing the contrast part of, of compare and contrast. And it took the second time going for me to see, oh no, wait, here's all the ways that we're similar. And here's all the, all the ways that, you know, e even in terms of poverty and corruption, there are, there are very similar problems in Madagascar and a place like the U.S. Yes, they're just framed differently, and you know there there have there there has been a lot of discussion in the United States over the past few years about 
politicians and um, <laughs> certain things that have been happening. Um, but even throughout, like we're, we're at a point right now where the House has voted to formalize an impeachment process and we are using words like treason. And we are, it is still not talked about most of the time in terms of corrupt politicians. Mm. That phrase is something that is generally relegated to other countries whose political processes we don't understand or we don't have enough information about kind of thing. But it's, there are so many similarities, even, even on a level like that. We all have, and especially nowadays, we all have these struggles with the government and our representatives not doing what they're supposed to do or trying to cheat the system or whatever it is. And so, you know, the, this, this book is, is just, is just a one way of helping combat that danger of a single story because it does show it, you know, the main character is this really rich, privileged, you, you kind of hate him at some times because he's just so annoying. Um, but not only that, but for, for Western readers, Yetze does go to France for college. And so that is a more familiar setting for most of, most of us who are reading in the English language. Um, and he, you know, there, there's, there's situations he gets into that, are more familiar to Western readers. And then that's put side by side with these wonderful rich legends mm. that we don't have any basis for. We don't have a, a kind of foundational understanding of the, the Malagasy creation myth. It shares certain aspects with mm -hmm. other cultures' creation myths, but there, there's a lot of it that is very unique to yes. Madagascar. It, it involves one wave of people coming over to the island and walking on giant lily pads in order to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and because that is presented right side by side with this very contemporary story of, you know, frankly, a spoiled rich brat, um, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it shows the complexities of a place that most English-speaking readers are not going to be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the reasons why I think this translation is so important, why it, it's so good to, to get it in front of readers, not only to specifically teach about Madagascar, but just to remind people that there is always more than we hear about in the news or in popular culture. And don't, don't even get me started on the animated movie called Madagascar because that's just lemurs <laughs> and like, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's the complexities of this place specifically and any place in general. Yeah. That I think is the one big takeaway that I hope readers will 
That is fantastic. You know, I love that so much uh, for multiple reasons. Um, but one, I going back to what you said earlier, um, that you're so happy that it was this book that is the second book coming out, you know, from Madagascar. And I think that's exactly it because it does provide a different perspective, mm -hmm. one that is unexpected, that is historical, that is present day, um, that's incredibly rich. So congratulations. I'm really happy to have read it and uh, I hope it gets out there. Um, but also just driving home the point that there's not one narrative mm -hmm. and our view of another place or another people um, is necessarily limited by our own perspective. Mm -hmm. And a hundred percent that is exactly the core of what Interlingo is aiming to do these days is to broaden our perspectives, our understanding, our appreciation. Um, and yes, to see the differences, to recognize the other, but also to recognize the humanity that you were talking about, that um, we really are all, um, there are more similarities than differences uh, between us all. So um, that was a wonderful, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will just say one more thing, which is that um, I, I went to Madagascar for the first time in 2014 and spent about five weeks there. And when I got home from that, I was, it, it was a wonderful trip. I met some wonderful people. I, you know, brought home a suitcase full of books, like who, who can't love that? But <laughs> I was, I was slightly disheartened. And there was a part of me that was scared of going back because I thought that as a white foreigner specifically, that I could never belong in a place like Madagascar and that I would always be mm. labeled as the other, you know, like it, it's very easy to spot blonde hair, blue eyes, very <laughs> pale skin. I stick yes. out like a sore thumb. Um, but the, the glorious thing about going back is that I was completely proven wrong. Mm. I, and, and that was just, that was all in my own perception. That was, I had worries that I didn't need to have. I had this, this false idea of, oh God, just because I don't look like these people, I'll never fit in. Mm. And, and that was very, you know, very one dimensional and very reductionist. And it, it, I, I went back last year on a grant. I stayed there for three months and it feels like, it feels like home now, which I never, I had never expected mm. to be the case. Um, and part of that part of that I think did come from a little bit of seeing some of the other Vazas, some of the other Vazas, though not that's a word for white foreigner essentially. Um, and it's, it's mostly French people, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I slide into that category as well. Um, and part of that is, is from seeing, you know, the kind of like gated community style of the, the French expats and the British expats who are right. there. Um, but that's also not the community that I want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and started just becoming friends with people and starting to figure out my own way around the, the city I was living in, the capital city, Tana. And it was, 
obviously it was very gratifying to feel like it was a place that I belonged, but it was so great to hear friends of mine say, oh yeah, you're totally Malagasy because you do X, Y, Z. It was, you know, you, you cross the street better than any of us kind of thing. You know, all of the little like back staircases in your neighborhood to, to do shortcuts through the city. You, you know, like you, you barter with the taxi drivers, even if you don't know a word of Malagasy yet, like you're Malagasy because X, Y, Z. And so, you know, if someone who looks like me can feel like a place like Madagascar is home and be mm-hmm. accepted by the people who clearly don't look anything like me, but it's the, the culture, there, there are so many differences between American culture and Malagasy culture, but, you know, you, you can belong anywhere, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. I love that. How fantastic for you. That is so great. Um, and thank you for, for bringing us a piece of Madagascar, for helping us to, to understand it better. Um, congratulations to you and to Johar for this book. I'm so excited uh, to see it on shelves soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you for so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been a really great opportunity. Excellent. Lovely. And I'm sure we will do it again. Yes, please. I will (laughs) let you know when the next book comes out. Fantastic. (laughs) Good. Thanks so much, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. 